Please be seated. My daughter Hallie is now almost 15 months old. Over the past two months, a change has happened of earth-shattering proportions. Hallie is now walk walking. Watch out, world. She's on the move. Hallie has gotten to the point where she's walking on her own unassisted. However, it has not always been like this. When she first started walking, my wife Paige and I would follow around, would follow behind her with our hands out, ready to catch her if she would stumble and fall. We were always there, even if she couldn't see us. Over those first few weeks, though, we didn't always catch her. Often, she would stumble backwards, land on her butt, and, lay, and cry out with a loud, piercing cry. This was hard to watch, but it was necessary because it was part of the process of her learning to walk. Even though we let her stumble and fall, we never left her alone. We were always there right by her side, ready to care for her in her moment of need. We see similar themes in our passage this morning. Genesis 39 reveals God's hidden hand and his presence amidst life's suffering. So let's begin this morning by exploring God's presence and hidden hand in the life of Joseph in Egypt. If you've not already done so, would you please turn with me in your pew Bibles to page 33 and begin looking at Genesis 39. In our passage this morning, God never directly dialogues with Joseph, and yet as we, the readers, from a bird's eye view, can see God's presence and his gracious provision. Look with me beginning at verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. God's hand was present the moment Joseph arrived in Egypt. He could have been bought by someone of low socioeconomic status, or he could have ended up working on the Egyptian common societal projects. Instead, God positions Joseph in the house of Potiphar. The text says that Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Potiphar, therefore, would have been wealthy not only in land, but also in political and social status. God guides Joseph to a prestigious house where he can advance. And this is exactly what happens. Let's keep looking at our passage at verse 2 now and following. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. The phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, shows up twice in verses 3 and in verse 4. Verses 2 and verse 3, excuse me. God's presence permeated Joseph's life. It accounts for this meteoric rise in favor and success. 
Verse two and three also use the word success twice to drill home the unique fruitfulness of Joseph's labor. This is not ordinary prosperity that comes from a high-capacity person. Instead, this is spectacular, surprising success that can only be attributed to divine support. As the captain of the guard, we can assume that Potiphar himself was successful, hardworking, and an incredibly savvy individual. This gives Potiphar the ability to more acutely realize that Joseph's success must be due to God's favor. The text details how Joseph's success enabled Potiphar to realize that the Lord was at the root of Joseph's accomplishments. Joseph's faithfulness was a form of evangelism in Potiphar's life. If we're reading this passage for the first time, we'd wonder, who is this God who is blessing Joseph? Our text answers that for us. It is Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am. Our narrator uses God's personal covenantal name, Yahweh, eight times in Genesis 39. This covenant name is used to bless the descendants of Abraham back in Genesis 12. Joseph experiences these blessings that flow down from this initial covenant. Therefore, what happens next in our story shouldn't come as a surprise. Humans are always attracted to success and fame. We want to be around that. Potiphar's wife is therefore no exception. Our text goes on to detail Joseph's temptation by Potiphar's wife. Look at the end of verse 6 and verse 7 with me. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Joseph is likely 17 or 18 at this time, and he's handsome in form and appearance like his mother Rachel. Potiphar's wife notices his success in dashing good looks, and this draws her eye, and she commands him to sleep with her. There are many reasons that he could have said yes. For example, as a young man, Joseph's hormones are raging and at full force, and so he's likely brimming with sexual curiosity and drive. It would have been natural for him to explore them. His family also would never know if he did this. What do they care? They abandoned and sold him into slavery and are all the way across the world. On top of that, Joseph was a slave. He wasn't his own. His job was to serve the household of Potiphar. It was common at that time in Egyptian uh, reality for slaves to sleep with their owners. Furthermore, it's a politically savvy, it is politically savvy to sleep with your master's wife. It's a time-tested strategy to get ahead. What's wrong with a little political idolatry for the greater good? When we reflect on Joseph's history up to this point, he had every reason to be angry, bitter, resentful, cynical, fearful, self-serving, and self-pitying. Every human reason to find fleeting solace in an illicit embrace. And yet, despite all of these realities, how does Joseph respond? He remains faithful and blameless. He chooses the good and rebuffs her sexual advances. Joseph responds to Potiphar's wife 
so three line, three set, three word temptation with his own 62 words of defense. Three words compared to 62 words of defense. Look beginning at verse eight. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Joseph offers three reasons that justify his refusal. The most important rationale for his response, though, is rooted in his relationship with the Lord. Joseph declares that this specific action would be great wickedness and sin against God. Joseph knows God's gracious hand is upon him and that God alone is responsible for his success. His greatest deterrent to sin then was knowing that there is no dark or locked room that is hidden from the view of God. God's presence is everywhere. Therefore, all actions are visible to the Lord. God sees all hearts, minds, and actions, no matter how hard we try to hide or suppress them. Holy Trinity, this is our greatest tool against temptation. God's presence and the awareness of his faithfulness gives us the best shot at preventing against any ensnaring chains of the world, the flesh, and the devil. This truth gives us strength to walk in the light. Unquestionably, Joseph had some good practical techniques to avoid sin up his sleeves. It'd be wise to take a book, it'd be wise to take a page out of his playbook. For example, the text says that Joseph did not listen to Potiphar's wife. He didn't entertain her advances. He didn't let his imagination wander, even for a moment. The text also says he doesn't compromise his ethics by even towing the boundary line by lying besides her. He doesn't budge even an inch because he knows that temptation just cascades from there. Finally, he even takes drastic measures of fleeing a room without a garment when it gets too dicey for him later in the story. These tools are helpful and they can be used even in our own lives. But for Joseph, they were rooted in his recognition that sin is against God. This empowered him to choose good. It gave him the gumption to make the hard decisions and to walk in the way of righteousness. It's at this point in the story that the narrative becomes a bit surprising, challenging, and frustrating. Joseph's decision to flee temptation was honorable. It was noble, it was the righteous thing to do. It seems he should be commemorated and celebrated. Instead, Joseph, Joseph is framed and condemned by a garment. Only this time, this garment results in him being thrown into a prison rather than a pit. Look beginning at verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie besides her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men in the house was there, when none of the men of the house was there in the home, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 
And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, uh, actually, let me jump down uh, to verse 16 to continue this narrative and skip some chunks. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Joseph rebuffs her advances day after day, and still the onslaught of temptation continues. She doesn't give up after the first no. This gives us a window into the reality of temptation. Avoiding temptation once doesn't mean that it'll simply go away. We must stay vigilant because temptation will come often, again with greater intensity and fervor. Potiphar's wife grabs his cloak and keeps the evidence close so that she can frame Joseph. When Potiphar hears her account, he's put in a bind. Attempted rape by a slave is an accusation of the highest order. It would have been permissible and normal and commendable from Potiphar to put Joseph to death right then and there. Potiphar's decision not to kill Joseph on the spot hints that he may not completely believe his wife's account. However, if he takes no action against Joseph, it will publicly signify that he questions his wife's word and integrity. Therefore, Potiphar chooses to jail Joseph with the king's prisoners. This is a place Pharaoh put political prisoners that he wanted to simply silence or make disappear. We know Joseph is innocent. It seems that Potiphar Potiphar knows it, and so it feels all the more frustrating and cruel and unjust that our text ends in verse 20 with the statement, and he was there in prison. Humans for all time have struggled with this paradox. Biblical authors cry out again and again, why do the wicked prosper while the innocent suffer? Unfortunately, our text does not answer this question for us this morning. It's, instead, it forces us to sit with, two, with some truths. Genesis 39 reveals that God's presence does not always result in worldly ease, and it certainly does not protect us from unjust pain. Most people long for ease and general happiness. This leads to a common belief among Christians that following God will result in a certain level of worldly prosperity. Said another way, Christians are often guilty of thinking that if we do everything right, all will go well for us. Joseph's story causes this idolatrous edifice of beliefs to come crashing down. God's presence doesn't guarantee bliss. A Christian cannot and should not expect a life free from pain and suffering. I have a friend that we'll call Kevin. Kevin knew God, but like all of us, he was not perfect. Through some unfortunate events, he and his wife ended up separating for some certain reasons. But this marital crumbling caused an incredible transformation in Kevin's life. 
He began to seek God daily. He sought counseling. He began to pray for his marriage multiple times a day. He met with godly mentors, and he submitted himself to everything his church asked of him. Our group of friends knew God was working in Kevin's life. It was evident to everyone. We all thought that this godly transformation and renewed pursuit of his wife would woo her back, that this marital blip would be an incredible testimony to the Lord. A few months ago, we found out that Kevin's wife not only filed for divorce, but she ended up getting pregnant by another man. Reality ended up much different than everyone had hoped. Instead of redemption and restoration, Kevin seemed to receive the exact opposite, continued heartbreak, confusion, and betrayal. Kevin chose the good and pursued righteousness, and God was clearly with him, yet it did not save his marriage. God's presence never guarantees our hopes or our dreams. Doing the right thing doesn't mean that all will go well for us. God's presence doesn't protect us from pain. If you doubt that, simply ask some of the great pillars, even in our own community, who have lost unborn children, experienced family tragedy, themselves experienced besetting mental or physical illness, who've been the victim of random acts of violence. I can't explain why the world works this way, but I take heart in the fact that God himself felt the weight of this unjust paradox as well. This is the pattern of the cross. In our gospel reading, we see that Jesus is righteous without guilt, and yet he also suffers under the weight of injustice. Two times in our gospel passage, Pilate comments that he sees no guilt in Jesus, and yet the people still cry out, crucify him. Jesus dies a cruel and unjust death. But just as we know that the Father left, never left Jesus through it all, so too with Joseph, and so too with us. Turn back with me to our Genesis passage, beginning at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph, and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the only one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it, made it succeed. Joseph was, God was still with Joseph while he was in prison. These latter verses echo similar themes found in verses 1 through 6. Our text again stresses that the Lord was with him two times, which again results in his favor and success. This is a crucial part of our story because it validates that God never abandoned Joseph, even amidst his sufferings. Even though he was in prison, God was never displeased with Joseph. His fate was not a result of God's punishment or anger. God was still committed to him amidst his pain, his discomfort, and his missed expectations. The reason for this is found in a phrase in verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Steadfast love is the English translation of the Hebrew word chesed. 
Hesed signifies God's covenantal faithfulness to his people. It conveys a sense of loyalty, a guarantee of a committed and eternal love, a love that cannot be withdrawn for a thousand generations. God's Hesed love, his loyalty, his gracious presence were just as consistent in Joseph's life when he was at the top of Potiphar's penthouse as when he was at the bottom level of a dirty prison. Therefore, friends, if you are in what feels like a pit or a prison, even though you've done what's right in the eyes of God, you too have not been abandoned. God's presence is still with you and he will remain by your side. He is still pleased with you and whatever befalls you, he will use for good. This is God's promise to you because of his hesed, steadfast love for you. It's a banner over you that will never come down. Recall that another name for Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus stands by your side amid life's sufferings and he understands everything that you're going through. This is because he too was emotionally and physically crushed by the weight of the world's wrath and injustice. He's now able to act as your advocate who intercedes on your behalf because he gets it. He knows. Draw strength from the story of Jesus because his story is our story. Suffering and death were not the final words for him, nor will they be for us as well. Our pits and prisons are temporary because like Jesus, we know how our story ends too. We too will be raised out of darkness and into the light. Genesis 39 is a rich text. It's an encouraging text. It's a sobering text. It reminds us of key truths of the gospel. God was present with Joseph, and it resulted in his success and favor. When we honor the Lord and pursue righteousness, God's presence will be with us. But that doesn't mean life will always turn out as we hope. Often, the righteous suffer. And yet God never abandoned Joseph, even though he ended up in jail. This wasn't a punishment. God's hesed, steadfast love was with Joseph through it all and brought prosperity and success, even amidst utter injustice and tragedy. You too are not alone in your pits and your prisons. He will remain faithful to you for a thousand generations because he has bound himself to you with love and loyalty. Pits and prisons are temporary. New life and resurrection await. Hope in the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we need your strength and your presence amidst the prisons and pits of life. Lord, we ask that your presence would be so near that we would be aware of your hand working. Lord, we thank you that you have not abandoned us. We praise you that As we see later in this story, what man intends for harm, Lord, you can use for good. Lord, we bless your name, and we beg for your intercession and presence in our life. Amen.